The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. Hey, friends, and welcome back to Afternoons with Mike right here on The Shepherd. Boy, I'm excited about today. You'll have to forgive me for geeking out just a little bit. I've got on the line with me a 15-time Grammy Award winner. He is in the Country Music Hall of Fame and more halls of fame than I even have time to go through. My guest today is Ricky Skaggs. Welcome, my friend. Mike, great to be with you today. Thank you for having me on. This is so exciting. I mean, I've followed your music for years. I've loved it. I mean, I I had no idea you were as proficient on guitar as you are. I knew you could pick the fire out of that mandolin, but you do indeed on both of those instruments, plus obviously a lot more as well. Uh, you know, you, you were one of these guys that at age five, you were already kind of headed in your career, maybe didn't realize just how deeply into the career you were going to go. But tell us a little bit about how it was at age five that you got into music? Well, my dad loved music so much. He and my mom both. My mom was a great singer, and I listened to her sing with dad, and I learned how to sing harmony from her. There was always music in our house, and uh, we were we would listen to the Grand Ole Opry, certainly on, uh, on Saturday nights back then. They didn't have a Friday night Opry back then, uh, but we would listen to the Grand Ole Opry, and uh, but my dad... Uh, my dad was a, a, a welder, and uh, he was away working on a working at a job up in Ohio, and uh, he uh, found this little mandolin uh, in a in a pawn shop. I think he gave five dollars for it wow. and uh, brought it home to me and stuck it in my bed. Uh, and I woke up to it, you know, uh, early in the morning, and there it was, you know. And uh, I just. Uh, I started kind of just plucking on the strings and I loved what I heard, you know, it was a mandolin. And, um, so dad showed me three chords, G, C, and D. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I kind of, kind of took it from there. And, and, uh, he, uh, he didn't, he he went and bought a guitar because we, uh, he had let a family friend, uh, use, use a guitar that, that, uh, that he owned, uh, many years before that. And, uh, but anyway, um, we uh, we just played music together all through the years, and I kept learning different instruments and kept learning, you know, learning guitar. Then later on, and and uh, but I just stayed with it, you know, and I uh, I really never found anything else that I wanted to do any more than play music. Tell us about what happened on that stage when you went to see one of your country music icon favorites. I think you were six years old at that. Can you tell that story? Yeah, uh, we went to to hear Bill Monroe uh, perform, and um, I did, had no idea that I was going to be getting up and playing or singing or anything <laughs> like that. And That's uh, crazy. so I, you know, uh, but people had, had saw me at church and they'd seen me at the, you know at the grocery stores and places like that playing playing my mandolin with my dad, and uh, so. Uh, you know, they uh, they started requesting to to uh, to let me get up and and sing and play, and uh, so I guess after a while, uh, Bill was Mr. Monroe was ready to put a stop to it. So uh, so he uh, he called my name and, and uh, <laughs> you know I, I got up on stage and and. Uh, he asked me what I wanted to play, and I told him I played the mandolin, and and uh, so he pulled his mandolin off and and put it around me, and I sang a, a song called "Ruby, Are You Mad at Your Man?" Uh, you know, a real a real six year old song to be singing, but uh, <laughs> I didn't know what she was mad at, but I, I, I loved the song. So uh, anyway, that's kind of what happened there. Oh and, my! Uh, when I was seven years old, got to. Got to be on uh, Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs uh, television show here in Nashville, and uh, you can see that on YouTube if you want to want to look it up. That's right. Anyway, yeah, we're li- we're living in a day, aren't we? That that kind of history. If you happen to be part of things that 
happen to be captured on film or uh, even on early video like that, uh, it's preserved and people can find out about it. And you've got a lot of that history out there on you. In a career of highlights, Ricky, what when you look back at, at uh, the, the things that's happened, either young or as you got older and, and you're coming up, what would be some of your favorite memories? Well, uh, gosh, get to play on the Grand Ole Opry, you know, mm. uh, for the first time. Uh, I guess I was working with Ralph Stanley uh, when I was 15 and uh, got to, you know, got to play the Grand Ole Opry. And uh, that was that was quite a big thing, you know, to, to get to do. Um, not as Ricky Skaggs, but it was certainly, you know, at that time anyway, but a few years later, I got to actually come on and, and, uh, and, and do a, you know, a, a performance by Ricky Skaggs back when I was, uh, you know, um, trying to get my career going. Right. You know, and, uh, but, uh, I've had a, I've just had a lot of, a lot of great, great memories. I get to work with, uh, you know, with Emmy Lou Harris uh, in 1978, mm-hmm. uh, get to go to got to go to work with her full time and uh, was in her band about uh, about two and a half, almost three years, and uh, opened a lot of doors for me in the country music field. And um, so coming to Nashville and getting a record deal and and uh, having my first number one country hit, you know, gosh, it was. Uh, Things just started happening, you know, and uh, it was a real, real joy, you know, and I, I didn't really see the hand of God on my life so much, you know, back then. I mean, I, I knew I had a gift. I knew I, knew I had talent. And um, but, you know, it, it, it took a while for me to to really understand that, you know, these gifts were given, you know, for others and, and and it certainly was given uh to give back to the lord you know uh, with uh you know with with all the gifts that i have is to you know do it in a way where it glorifies him and honors him mm, that's beautiful and i think that should be the goal of every believing musician like yourself out there to try to bring glory to god in how we live and you know i think the day is today that such living and such efforts uh, it's going to shine like stars in the nighttime man because our culture is dark right now i know you see that and you're part of a music scene that's a big end of the it's a deep end of the pool my friend you're coming to florida next month february 8th in lake wales February 9th in the Jacksonville area in Orange Park. And then on the 10th, right in Central Florida in Weirsdale at this famous Orange Blossom Opry venue for two shows. I, I know you're getting ready for these, and uh, that's going to. Have you been to the Orange Blossom Opry before? Yeah, quite a few times. Uh, we, we usually do that once a year and have done that for probably the last. Uh, eight or ten years. Oh, you know, we've great! Been there every year. Uh-huh. So yeah, we we enjoy that place. It's always fun. Yeah, I have never been in that building, but I hear it. It's a wonderfully. It's not a small, small theater, but it feels very intimate wherever you're sitting in that place. And I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing you guys there. I'm hoping that's going to be my first time there to see you guys. And again, you can get all of the information by going to this website. O B O. Uh, it's O B O P R Y. That's Orange Blossom. O B O as in Orange Blossom. Opry dot com, and you can get tickets right there and all. I gotta ask you about one of my favorite recordings that I've heard you and just melted when I heard it for years, and that is with Vince Gill and Patty Loveless when you did Go Rest High. And I know the writing of that song uh, that even carries some deep personal meaning to you as well, right? Yeah, I think uh, I think Vince wrote that. Um, he may have started it when his brother passed away, but I think when Keith passed away, I think uh, um, he wanted to go ahead and finish it. You yeah. know, and uh, Keith Whitley. Anyway, yeah. Yes, Keith Whitley. Uh huh. And um, so, um, yeah, we. I remember Vince had the track already cut, and uh, he called Patty and I in the in the studio to sing harmony with him, 
and uh man it was uh it was just amazing you know uh, the blending of those three voices together and for that beautiful song you know and uh it it may not be you know his biggest seller but i know one thing uh for if you ask you know what's your favorite Vince Gill song or if you you know if you even mention Vince's name people will will always mention that song Go no ahead. doubt about it i mean it's sung yeah. at funerals and obviously it's sung at some pretty high profile funerals even with Vince i think he cried all the way through it at the George Jones funeral. You've yeah. also got this band, and let's talk about that for a moment. Talk about some pickers, man. The Kentucky Thunder. We had Dennis Parker on my program about a week ago. Tell us about the Kentucky Thunder. Well, it's just uh, it's a group of guys that uh, you know that I get to I, I say I get to play with. I mean, you know, they're my band, but but uh, but I feel. Uh, I feel like all these guys are just like the best of the best. Um, mm, they are player, fiddle player, bass player, um, and of course Dennis plays um, plays everything. Plays mandolin, plays uh, fiddle, plays guitar, and a great harmony singer. But he's also a great lead singer too. And uh, just love. Uh, Love having him in the band. Of course, we have a harmony singer named Mike Rogers that's in the band, and Mike plays acoustic guitar and plays the the cajon. It's a little a little wooden box mm-hmm. that, uh, that he sets on and plays, and that's uh, that's really cool. And then uh, uh, a fella plays banjo for us, uh, uh, Russell Carson, and uh, he's been with me going on ten years now. So a lot of these guys are have been been around here a while, and then some of them are. Uh, I think the bass player is the is the newest addition that we've had, and he's been with us uh, going on his third year now. So it's uh, really really great to have him. So yeah, it's just a, it's an incredible band, and you know they never get nominated, they never get voted as you know um, band of the year anymore. We've had a few a few, uh, few awards where we had that back years ago, mm-hmm. but I'd put them up against anybody uh, being able to. Uh, to play not just bluegrass, but they can play country, they can play gospel, they can play uh, anything, you know, swing. Um, it's 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 amazing to hear them, hear them all play. For our listeners who are going to take part in one of these concerts that are coming up next month, tell us what people will see when they see Ricky Skaggs and Kentucky Thunder. What are they going to experience? Well, a very clean show. Uh, so moms and dads can certainly bring their kids. Um, but we, we encourage moms and dads to bring their kids anyway, just for, uh, for the fact that, um, you know, young children, young kids are very impressionable. Uh, and I know going to see Bill Monroe when I was, when I was young, when I was six years old, man, that's the first time I'd ever seen a full band and and like I said earlier, got to play with a full band. That that was pretty amazing. But uh, you know, uh, but if mo- if moms and dads out there, and of course there's a lot of a lot of single moms now that's raising raising families, or, or maybe even single dads. But uh, if your kids have any kind of leaning toward an, an instrument of some kind musically, or if they just really like music, you know, bring them out to see us because. Uh, Seeing, I mean, seeing an old man with gray hair is one thing, but you know, seeing uh, some younger guys playing their own instruments uh, is can really make a great impression uh, on on young people. I agree completely, and I think that uh, what your dad did for you is just the kind of impartation and faith for our kids that we all need to have. Thank God he got you that $5 mandolin. Look what it did, and that was amazing. Again, friends, if you want tickets, all you have to do is go to obopry.com. That's O-B as in Orange Blossom Opry.com. For Ricky Skaggs. And Ricky, I can't tell you what a uh, joy it has been to have you on my show. Be sure and say hello to Dennis for me, okay? I sure will. I'll be seeing him uh, tomorrow night when we leave town and go to North Carolina. So, All uh, right. Good talking to you, Mike.
It's. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in February, Ricky, and thanks again for being with me. Yes, sir. God bless you. And you, sir. Many thanks to Ricky Skaggs. What a great privilege to have that chat with him. Well, here's a question. Do you know what Chevron deference is? Reverend Al Mohler from The Briefing is going to help us on that one. The Supreme Court's conservative majority in over three hours of open hearings in terms of oral arguments appeared to be ready at least to consider discarding one of the most important, if damaging, precedents set by the Supreme Court over the course of the last century. That would take us back to 1984 and a case known as Chevron versus the National Resources Defense Council. In that case, the Supreme Court of the United States developed a new doctrine, and that doctrine became known as deference because of the name of the case, it became known as Chevron deference. The Supreme Court, 1984, said that if the law is ambiguous in any respect, a federal agency has the right to be presumed competent and acting authoritatively if it acts reasonably upon the law. Now, this became a major engine for the development, indeed the explosion, of what we would call popularly the federal bureaucracy, but more specifically, it is the growth of the administrative state. And this leads to some of the biggest issues of worldview consideration, and we're going to go deep into those issues today. Again, more than three hours of oral arguments. And this has been building for a number of decades. Almost as soon as the Supreme Court handed down that precedent in 1984, conservatives understood that our very constitutional system of government is at risk. We have federal administrative agencies, sometimes with what amounts to police power, acting as if they have the full authority of the law and even promulgating policy with the effect and status of law that Congress has never adopted, no president ever signed into legislative authority. We are looking at the rise of what amounts to a fourth branch of government, and this an unelected branch. Now, behind all of this is a fascinating story that takes us not back just to 1984, but frankly takes us back to the 19th century and takes us to Germany. And here's where the worldview issues get really thick and really fascinating. If you go back to the rise of modern professional government, the place you would go is not the United States of America. You wouldn't go to Great Britain. You would go to Prussia. Prussia, that largely became the center of Germany with the unification of Germany in the 19th century. Prussia was the site of the growth of the administrative state. It was the locus of new rational government under the cult of efficiency and order. And you can understand why those German ideals were translated into a new understanding of government. Bismarck, famously Germany's Iron Chancellor, became the head of a government that was vastly expanded, went far beyond what government had done in the past. And there was added to all this the cult of professionalism and efficiency. The governing rule of Bismarck was that Germany could be held together and become all that it was destined to be as the greatest state in Europe and perhaps in the world if there could be an efficient, powerful central government put into place that would develop policies that were rational and reasonable and basically beyond the political process. That's the most important issue, beyond the political process. If you go back to your understanding, the classic understanding of how laws come to pass in the United States, you have to have both houses of Congress pass a bill. The bill is then sent to both houses, give their affirmative consent. It is sent to the president of the United States who must sign the bill into law. The people elect those political officers who fulfill that responsibility. And going all the way back to elementary school, you can remember the chart that showed you how a bill becomes a law. Now, that chart is still basically sound. It shows in our constitutional form of government, by the way, how a bill becomes a law. But Bismarck's ideal was that you could go around the political process and create a political elite, an administrative elite, that would handle these things so you wouldn't have to go through all the messy process of legislation. You can catch more of this from Al Mohler 
by going to The Briefing. That's albertmuller.com, The Briefing, and that was Thursday's edition. We'll be back after this. If you're a Christian business person and you want to meet people who want to do business with you, you need to join the Central Florida Christian Chamber of Commerce. Why? Because the mission of the Christian Chamber is to build kingdom, business, and community. And it all starts with the Christian principle of building relationships. To learn more about the Christian Chamber and all the different ways you can get engaged with hundreds of other Central Florida Christian business people, visit cfchristianchamber.com or call 407-258-3578. Back again now with Craig Huey on the line. Craig is a, a person that I just love to get his thoughts on. He is a political analyst. He is an author. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for joining me today. Great to be with you. It's great to be back. You know, when I think about this week, we are are kind of coming to the close of what has been a rather eventful week, starting off Monday with what's going on in Iowa. What did you think about all of that? And what did you kind of pull from the events of that caucus in Iowa? Well, Mike, it's it's, uh, the drama playing out that is really critical. And it's shows the power of the evangelical vote. And the evangelical Christians make up a huge portion uh, of the Iowa uh, uh, voting group. It's close to some uh, 28% of all the people uh, in in Iowa who actually come to the caucus. And um, what had come up of DeSantis and Trump going after the evangelical vote, and uh, uh, through all that drama, uh, Trump was able to pull off getting many of the evangelicals that people thought he had lost because of the church closures, because of um, uh, criticism of uh, of, uh, some of the pastors there in Iowa, uh, because uh, uh, Christian leaders in Iowa were supporting DeSantis. And because of the abortion issue, uh, 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 they thought Trump would lose that evangelical vote. He did not. And so uh, uh, his uh, 51% uh, victory in Iowa uh, was because of the evangelical. You know, that really is a shocking statistic. I think a lot of people, at least early on in this whole process, maybe uh, uh, last May, or June, would have figured that Ron DeSantis would have played a much bigger role in the outcome of Iowa than what he ended up doing. What are your thoughts on why that didn't materialize? Really good question. Um, uh, DeSantis uh, has has gone uh, after the evangelical vote, as, as he should. He aligns his values with evangelical in a powerful way. His criticism of uh, Trump, um, uh, while while relatively soft, uh, has has resonated with the evangelicals. When he spoke before the National Religious Broadcasters Association down in Orlando, Florida, that's right. I was uh, there. Yeah. Yes, and, and Mike, uh, if you remember, he got multiple standing ovations by the Christian leaders. Yes, these are authors, broadcasters. These are uh, Bible teachers. They're, these are people within the Christian media, uh, a room of, what do you think it was, Mike, maybe 2,000 people? Uh, actually, people. more like 4,000. There you go, 4,000 people, standing ovations. Uh, he was able to communicate with the evangelicals, and he worked very hard at it. And the fact is, the popular press, uh, the, 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 the biased media, uh, uh, the political consultants, uh, the talking heads on on the different networks, basically said DeSantis was going to be wiped out. Nikki Haley would come in number two. DeSantis would be embarrassed by having less than ten or fifteen percent of the vote, and he came out with whatever I think it was about twenty-two or twenty-three percent of the vote. Right. And head of Nikki Haley. And uh, that 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 was a stunning win for him, and it was because of the evangelical vote. Now, now Iowa has a very high percentage of evangelicals. Um, the next primary is coming up on Tuesday, 
and that has 11% of the voters, not, not 20, 25, not 28%. It has 11% of the voters are evangelical. So it's a small number. Mm-hmm. And so uh, DeSantis has calculated he doesn't have much of a chance because he, he, he really is going after the conservative, more libertarian, concentrating on the evangelicals. That base is not as strong, especially when you consider that the drama that's playing out with the Tuesday primary in New Hampshire, Democrats and independents can vote in the Republican Party. And um, for a variety of reasons, uh, uh, the vote is be going uh, for, from them is going to uh, Nikki Haley. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joe Biden is not even on the ballot. Um, that's a whole nother drama where uh, the Democrats National Committee and the Joe Biden Obama uh, marketing machine decided New Hampshire was not going to be a state they wanted to be on. They said the first primary they wanted to be in South Carolina and that they weren't going to count any of the votes in uh, New Hampshire for the Democrats. And so he, uh, uh, Biden has uh, two people on the ballot in New Hampshire that are Democrats, uh, and uh, uh, they're very upset that um, Biden is not on the ballot. But the Democrats uh, will probably vote for Nikki Haley. And um, uh, and then the following uh, uh, primaries going to be Nevada and South Carolina. Mm-hmm. South, South Carolina, that could decide who is going to be the presidential candidate. One last thing, Mike. Um, these, uh, when, when you run in these races, you, uh, when you win, you get a proportion of the uh, delegates that are going to be at the nominating con- uh, convention. Mm-hmm. You do not get all. So out of the 40 uh, delegates that were available in Iowa, uh, Trump uh, gets the majority of them, but DeSantis gets a good portion of them. The delegates are counted proportionally. Yeah. And so... Uh, it's the same thing in New Hampshire. It's the same thing South Carolina, and it, it, that that's where DeSantis and Haley are saying, "I don't have to win. I have to pick up more delegates. And as I pick up speed and pick up delegates, I could win uh, the nomination uh, uh, by the Republicans." Do you think that either DeSantis or Haley has enough gas in the tank? Uh, to make it to South Carolina and to do that kind of thing? I think uh, for Haley, she's going to do very well because of the Democrat uh, vote she's going to get in New Hampshire. It's going to give her a big buzz uh, in the media and that um, among among donors. And, of course, South Carolina is her home state. DeSantis made a, a calculation that he's not going to do well in New Hampshire. Uh, uh, but he can do very well in South Carolina with the evangelical Christians. Mm -hmm. And so he is concentrating on a state that has uh, some 22, 20 of the voters are going to be people who are born-again Christians, evangelical Christians, and and, uh, he is counting on those to help pull him over the top where Nikki Haley and Donald Trump the vote and he would come in ahead of them. Wow, all of this is like you said, it's a big numbers game, isn't it? It's kind of hard it's, to imagine what's going to happen. It's impossible and that's why most people who are giving their predictions turn out to be wrong uh, but it is something that uh, uh, is, uh, is absolutely critical for the future of America. Who's going to be the presidential candidate? What are going to be the policies? How do we protect uh, Christian rights? How do we protect individual freedom? How do we move our economy ahead? And how do we have a safer world? Yeah, I I tell you, these are questions that we all need to be asking ourselves, and we need to get involved in this process, learn as much as we can, and uh, make sure that people are voting. And, you know, Craig, as simple as that sounds, that's kind of a profound reality, though, 
the the truth is if people don't get out and vote like those people who in Iowa braved minus 40 wind chills to go out and do the caucusing if people aren't voting we really are looking at a a almost a grab bag here as to what's going to happen in this thing. People need to vote. They need to vote. They need to vote their values. And yet, born-again evangelical Christians usually don't. Some 20 to 30 percent in every church there is, every evangelical church, mega church, small church, the people are not registered to vote. And then out of those who are registered to vote, some... uh, uh, 60 to 70 percent will not vote, even though they're registered in the upcoming primaries. Most people's primaries are uh, uh, March, uh, uh, early March, I think March 5th it is. And, 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 and those, uh, they actually will not go to the poll. And, and that's, that's one of the keys that DeSantis understood from his uh, massive and effective ground game uh, running for governor uh, in Florida. Yeah, he did it. So the ground game, yeah. And so he tried to bring that to Iowa. That was the only, re- re- you know, he targeted evangelicals. He he tried to his best to get them to go to the caucuses. And, uh, and he understands that. He's bringing that to South Carolina. Now, you know, here's, here's the thing. 40% less people showed up to vote in Iowa than in 2016, and oh. that's because of the cold. Yeah, the cold that's did have an impact then. Yeah, yeah. So it, 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 it's a numbers game, and evangelicals hold the key to any of these candidates' success. And so, the, you know, where does where does the candidate stand on key non-negotiable issues like the right to life? Where do they stand on the protection of Israel? Where do they stand even on the protection of the persecuted church worldwide? Where do they, under, where, where do they stand in regards to the weaponization of government that has targeted Christians, pro-lifers, the traditional Catholics? Uh, 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 the, these are key issues. And so that's what DeSantis is running on. Of course, uh, Trump is always uh, talking about dismantling the deep state, and that would have impacted that. Nikki Haley, uh, her message has been more soft on that. And uh, and so while she does want the evangelical vote, uh, that is not her core uh, audience. Yeah, I, I get that. And you're right. Now, I wanna, we've got about five minutes left in this segment, and I want to turn attention back to former President Trump for just a moment. And the, and the fact is that he did get a surprising amount of the evangelical vote in Iowa. Now, that being said, there's still a lot of division, even among believers. And if you talk to certain people, as I have done over the past several months, uh, a lot of people who would have voted for Trump in 2016 uh, and did vote for Trump in 2020, have kind of turned the other way. And because of some of the, the you know, the personality stuff that comes out, some of the name calling, uh, a nickname for Ron DeSantis, as he had all of that, do you feel that that kind of uh, stuff is going to somehow get settled in and that evangelicals, uh, if, if Donald Trump is going to be the nominee and he wins out uh, throughout these next couple of ones of uh, primaries coming up, do you feel like the evangelicals can settle that and and turn back and, and support him? Great question, because a lot of evangelicals did not support him in 2020. They didn't support Biden. They just did not vote. And, and so th- there was a, a major decline in the number of evangelicals that actually went to the polls in 2020 and then uh, versus 2016. And then uh, uh, many of the pastors who in 2016 were telling people for, for, for our, our, our religious liberty, for, for, for our family. Uh, we, we've got to stop the madness in Washington, D.C., and we've got to vote for Donald Trump. They did not do that in 2020. There was many of them uh, pretended the election didn't even go on. Mm-hmm. And so can Trump reverse that? That's the big question. 
Uh, I, I have my doubts based upon I, I have over 100,000 subscribers to my evangelical uh, uh, newsletter. And the feedback I get, you know, huge support for Donald Trump, huge. But then there's a, a large group of people that fall into two divisions. One, they are upset about the fact that he went along with the church closures and, and the uh, the whole COVID craziness that went down with the lockdown. Yeah, right. And then we've got another group of people who are, uh, and, and, and these are a lot of church leaders and a lot of pastors, and uh, but another group of, of Christians to say, uh, uh, you know, we 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 have a problem with Trump's language, with his cussing with his uh, uh, put-downs of other people. Uh, and while we love his policy, uh, we have a problem publicly supporting this man. And so they backed off. So Trump has a lot of repair, and I'm not sure he's going to be able to do it uh, among a group of evangelicals that really uh, could decide, ultimately, the election of 2024. And I think that's a big fear about a lot of people in that who are conservatives and they're on the right side of this, that if Trump is the nominee, that it could almost end up being just like it was in 2020 because of the fact that there are uh, there, there's just this division. And if uh, it's almost like the same impact, isn't it, of a third party uh, candidate, if they get in and they, they just kind of pull enough away from the from the candidate that would be a Republican to kind of make it a void there in the end and in the general election, it could go a way that America doesn't want to go. At least they act like they don't want to go <laughs> continuing what we're doing right now with the inflation being what it is. And it's just a one final quick question. I've got this before we come yeah. to the end of the break uh, and then we'll take that break. But do you think that Michelle Obama is going to come up at the last hour? I personally do. And uh, she's the most logical person to replace Biden. Um, quite frankly, the Democrats have a marketing machine 10 to 15 years more advanced than the Republicans. And they probably could have him in a nursing home and, w and win an election. Wow. But practically, the uh, 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 Michelle Obama would be a superstar. Uh, it, it would solve the Kamala Harris problem. And, and replacing her, and uh, Obama would still be in control as he is today with the administration, and uh, she would be uh, uh, a very hard-to-beat Democrat. Uh, Mike, I can't imagine four more years of the chaos that yeah, we've had. No doubt of, of the uh, of the destruction of the family and, and world order that we've had. The, the impact of the on the economy for four more years of this, I, I could not imagine it. Yeah. But Michelle Obama, she would be the superstar that the Democrats would need. And all it takes is the Democratic convention purposely held in Chicago, not in a, a swing state, but in Chicago. Obama had it in his home ground uh, and they'll make a decision. Do we go for Biden? Do we go for someone else? And if that someone else is, it could be Michelle. Wow. Tumultuous potential for that outcome right there. All right. Craig Huey's with me. We'll be back with Craig talking about his electionforum.org site. That's Craig Huey, my guest, and we'll be right back with him. Join host Mike Gilland for The Shepherd at Work every Saturday morning at 10.05 a.m. You will be introduced to a marketplace leader that will help you learn to walk out your faith wherever you live and work. The Shepherd at Work is sponsored by the Central Florida Christian Chamber, building kingdom, business, and community throughout our area. That's The Shepherd at Work, this Saturday morning at 10.05 a.m. Back again now for our last segment with Craig Huey, who is on the line and helping us kind of sort through all this stuff. There are so many evangelical-based questions that this election is going to be about. 
We all know that there are things happening in our country that are not sustainable. Man, Craig, when you look at what's going on at the border alone, if that were the only thing that would be a cause of concern, and that's a big one right there. Huge, huge. You know, uh, uh, it's a matter of of, uh, chaos, really, of what is going on uh, from an objective standpoint. The the problem, of course, with with the border, this is purposeful. This is part of a, a determined effort to merge ideology, which is open borders, with practicality, which is registering new voters yeah. and getting them to vote for you. Yeah. And you're talking about 8 million people since Biden came in, a, a, at least. And, and that includes uh, the known getaways, 1.8 million people who we don't know if they have a criminal record, we don't know if they're drug dealers. We don't know if uh, they're from uh, uh, sent over from some country out of uh, prison. We don't even know if they're terrorists who have been able to get across. All we know is they, they spotted them trying to get across the border instead of as surrendering and saying, here I am. Give me my free plane ticket to the city of my choice. Yeah. Give me my free cell phone. Give me my free food my education, my medical care, and housing. And a driver's license. And a driver's license, which, of course, then they can register to vote. So so when you're dealing with that, somebody who purposely tries not to get caught and escape, and, of course, there's many more than the 1.8 million who are in the known getaways who they never detected. And so we have a very unsafe America right now mm-hmm. because of these uncertainties. And, 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 and this is a huge election issue. And, 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 of course, the economy where everything on average, this is just the average, it's 18 percent higher prices since Biden took office. Wow. And in yeah. some cases, like food, it's 25 percent. That's right. And, of course mortgage rates and you got car payments and, and everything else has gone up, 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 and it's not going down. Yeah. And so they, they tell a, a, a misinformation, well, we're lowering the prices. No, you're slowing the rate of inflation because of the massive overspending of government. Biden and the Congress overspent. The Federal Reserve created money out of thin air. And uh, and increase the money supply, and the value of the dollar goes down, and the prices go up. And so we we have to be able to stop this. Um, of course, one of the one of the problems we have, we've got all these issues that, from a logical standpoint, you would say, okay, America's going to vote against this and change course. That's the logic. Yeah, but. You know, Mike, there, there's all kinds of things going on today. Um, wh- when I go out and I, I speak at a church or an organization, I for, for over 10 years, I talked about how we lived in the age of skepticism. Mm-hmm. People just did not believe necessarily what they heard. They, they, they were skeptical about everything. That has that is going to transition in the year of 2024 to the age of deception. Wow. Because wow. deception is what's going to be over this land in a way never before seen. Part of that has to do with AI and artificial intelligence. You know, AI has the potential of doing the greatest good in solving some of the, the of the, the incurable diseases we have, AI can come up with solutions. And, and, and personalizing education and being able to make business more efficient and effective and providing goods and services they've never b- dreamed of before, AI can do that. But like Elon Musk says, AI could be the end of civilization. Yes. And AI has huge threats. And and one of these threats, Mike, is the 2024 election. And um, um, uh, many in your audience 
have heard the word deep fake. And deep fakes are something that for for Christians are are very, very disturbing. Hmm. Um, let, let me give you just a couple of examples. I wrote about uh, and exposed the fact that there's a video that's gone to some close to 2 million people. People see the video and they love it. And the video is this kid who's singing a Christian song and he's, and he's performing and, it's a, and, and he wins the contest on one, of the, on one of the shows. And people say, wow, this is great. This is glorifying God. I'm going to pass this on to my friends. It was all a deep fake, a phony video. All, everything about it, including the, the judges applauding and smiling and everything, it was all put together, and it never happened. It never happened. It, it never happened. And that's the problem. For, for, for the church, AI can improve communication, improve uh, reaching people with the gospel, but it also can be extremely dangerous um, to, to our persecuted church, to our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world who are being persecuted right now, whether they're in India, whether they're in Nigeria, uh, whether they're in the Middle East or Africa, uh, and, and their churches are being burnt, or they can't, they have no churches because they are not allowed. Uh, in many of these countries, they have what's called a blasphemy law. And if you violate the blasphemy law, you're going to not only be jailed, you're probably going to be killed. Wow. Because you violated the law. Yeah. They have these blasphemy laws in India, in the Middle East. Can you imagine taking a video and altering that video for a pastor in India or a Christian in Pakistan? Where, where you change what they're saying to, to uh, blasphemy against uh, Muhammad. Yeah. And you look at that video, you see the, the voice, and it sounds like the person's voice. You see his lips moving. It looks exactly like they said this. And that's the proof to kill them. That's the proof to condemn them. Mm-hmm. And that, that this could be something that accelerates the persecution of Christians. Well, here in the United States, deepfakes are already being used. Biden's used deepfakes. DeSantis has used deepfakes. Trump has used deepfakes. These are videos, quality videos where you look at it and you think, or, or photos, where you think through. Trump did a one where he had um, uh, uh, the candidates, uh, his opposition, Nikki Haley and DeSantis, um, all, all saying uh, the the term he used against them. You know, he's got a nickname for all of them. Oh yeah, he them repeating that name uh, on video as if they really said it. It looks like they really said it. Um, uh, DeSantis uh, uh, had created a. a, a, a a deep uh, fake where it almost looks like uh, uh, Trump uh, is uh, hugging and kissing uh, Dr. Fauci. And, and, and you know, you, you cross an ethical line, uh, and, and sometimes these are the candidate's own committees. Sometimes these are committees supporting the candidate. The candidate doesn't have anything to do with it, some political consultant. And there's going to be a situation in 2024 where we have so many videos that we're going to see of the candidates, and some people are going to believe whatever they see and whatever they hear, but um, they're not true. There, there's one uh, video uh, where uh, somebody with the Trump campaign got Hillary Clinton to say that she had had enough of Biden and she was supporting Donald Trump for president. Oh, man. And people believed it and were passing it off to their friends. Oh, man. 
Yeah, that's yeah. really a scary thing, isn't it, to think that because uh, America is very gullible all without the AI. But if you add this AI component in there, who knows? I mean, it's like an open field as to what could happen out there in the general public who, uh, you know, I, I think about that Howard Stern uh, campaign that he did a number of years ago when he, he knew how pe- people were so gullible. So he exploited it and had people out in the field. I know I'm not a fan of Howard Stern at all, but this part that he did was hilarious. And he had people just asking the general population, like, what do you think about, uh, you know, having McCain and... And uh, you know, this other person who's not was not running. What what do you think uh, their chances are, or, or what happened in the election today? How did you vote when there was no election, or when he yeah. used the wrong names and people just went along with it, thinking that they were going to be on the radio or on television, and right. there they are. They're just making up answers. That's how gullible a lot of people in our country is. It's sad, isn't it? It's very sad, and that's why I'm calling this the age of deception. Yeah. And so we're going to have, as as believers in Christ, as people who are rational and people who want to be bearers of truth, be very skeptical about video and audio and pictures we see. We have to be very careful that what we tell others about or send out to others is actually the truth. Uh, we may be finding ourselves that uh, as 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 people understand that we are in the age of deception, more and more are not going to really pay attention to videos, and they're not going to pay attention to uh, to photos. They're not going to pay attention to things that aren't true. They've got to see it with their eyes, hear it with their ears, experience it to know that it's true. Uh, they're they're going to learn. But there's always that element of people who, maybe because they want to believe it, believe something that is a lie. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and right now the ability, the technology, it's it, it's absolutely amazing how they can pass a uh, fake uh, voice and audio visual, mm-hmm. pass it through a filter, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe a million times. Until the AI says nobody will detect that this is not true. Yeah, yeah, and, they and can, that's the technology of today. They can sample people's voices and then recreate yeah. that voice in any type of a of a scenario and make it sound like you said whatever they want you to say. That's where we are, yeah. and it's a scary it's day. Grateful we have hope in God, and God is greater than AI. Hallelujah. I'm glad for that. Hey, Craig, thank you for being with me today. Electionforum.org, that is the website to find out more about what we need to know for this upcoming election. And it's uh, it's just going to be uh, an interesting one to see, to say the least. But I'll be checking in with you. By the way, you're going to be in Nashville next month at the NRB? I will be. I'll be speaking on AI. All right. Well, I we got to get together there, Craig, and I'll be in the press center. So this will be fun to see you there, my friend. And uh, Very boy, good. appreciate your being with me today. Friends, thank you for joining us as well. We'll see you next time right here on Afternoons with Mike.